Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales... I hated being Alice of Alice's Restaurant. Yes, she's Alice Brock, the Alice of Alice's Restaurants. And she's my special guest today on Amazing Tales. Does she still hate being that Alice? Well, her life's gone through a fair number of interesting twists and turns, and we're going to take a look at all of them in just a moment. Now stay tuned for She Put the Alice in Alice's Restaurants. For those of you who are well-versed in the Arlo Guthrie song, Alice's Restaurants, you know that the first part of the story takes place in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, the second part about the military draft during the Vietnam War was set on Whitehall Street in New York City. But this is a podcast about Connecticut history, you say? So where's the connection? Well, hang tight. There's going to be a little surprise at the end that'll bring this story back into the nutmeg state, or at least one chapter of it. I first met Alice Brock in 2014. I was vacationing with my wife on Cape Cod in Provincetown at the very end of the Cape. Alice's Restaurant had been a favorite song of mine ever since it came out in the 1960s. The folk anthem was the brainchild of songwriter Arlo Guthrie. I'd done some research showing that Alice had an art studio in Provincetown, and part of the vacation was devoted to finding that studio and seeing if we could introduce ourselves. Well, as luck would have it, we found her studio— but the sign out front said it was only open on appointment or weekends or by chance. Well, we went back to our hotel, called her studio's telephone number, and found a convenient time to drop by. And when we did, it was better than I had even imagined. Alice had both her own art as well as memorabilia from the incident in Stockbridge. Among her arts were beach stones, something that's now a collector's item, as her medical condition no longer allows her to create them. I proudly own two of them, and you can see photos of one of them on my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. Alice says the idea of painting a face on a rock and leaving it on the beach for someone else to find always intrigued her. When people walk along the beach, they're going to be looking, you're always looking down at the shelves and the sand and the stones and the beach glass and all of a sudden something will be looking back at them if you can still find one the rocks usually have a cat emblazoned on them but we're getting ahead of the story like any human being there's a story behind the story and alice's story has its own fair share of twists and turns she was born in 1941 in brooklyn new york near eastern parkway now she's 81 years old and has been diagnosed with COPD and lives with an oxygen-breathing machine. Her parents in those days were quite liberal, she says. Her dad, a member of the Communist Party. And this was at the time when Senator Joseph McCarthy was castigating persons at congressional hearings who belonged to that party, trying to ruin their reputations and lives. Alice says she, too, was a nonconformist growing up pushing the envelope and testing the boundaries. A bit of a rebel. I was a very bad child. I was always in trouble. You know, it didn't matter that much because the trouble was just kid trouble. Of course, as I got older, I got into worse trouble. (laughs) 
This included, by her own recollection, having been thrown out of nursery school, dropping out of grade school in the third grade, not finishing high school and nearly being confined to a reform school for some criminal mischief, and dropping out of Sarah Lawrence College before graduating. As you may have guessed, she says she didn't like school. And yet along the way, she distinctly recalls two very important moments. One was at a private school that her parents had gotten her enrolled into. The school had demonstrated an appreciation for diversity decades before it became fashionable by bringing in guests who had made a difference. Alice was able to meet a famed member of her beloved Brooklyn Dodgers. I remember shaking hands with Jackie Robinson. Oh, that was a thrill. Yes, that was the Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to break the color barrier and play on a major league baseball team. While that was a thrilling memory, perhaps more important to Alice's overall development was a teacher at that school who got her focused on a key love in her life. They had a great art teacher, and I really got into painting and sculpture and all of that, which saved my life, really. Alice says that art afforded her the opportunity to escape from negativity and simply enjoy the beauty of life. You just get swept away when you're doing it. You enter a different world when you're actually drawing and painting. It's like you go away and you're taken, something else takes over. It's a wonderful feeling. Anybody who's creative knows what I mean. Aside from art, her other love in those days was politics. She joined groups that matched her strong liberal leanings, groups like SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and the NAACP, the Black Lives Matter type of group from those days. In the late 1950s, Alice says that people in her age group who had a belief system like hers and a lifestyle like hers were categorized. I think we were called Bohemians. Then we were called Beatniks. Then we were called Hippies. In those days, the place to hang out in New York City was Greenwich Village in southern Manhattan. That's where the folk singing era was exploding, with emerging talents performing there like Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the Clancy Brothers, just to name a very few. Well, Alice hung out there too, and one day spotted her future husband, Ray Brock. I used to hang out at this bar called the Cedar Street Tavern. So I was in there one afternoon, (laughs) and he was there. There weren't too many people there. And he was, oh, God, he was so handsome, and he was carrying a guitar case. But the contents of the guitar case might surprise you. Actually, it didn't have a guitar in it. It had, you know, a change of clothes because he was booking a flight to Puerto Rico. He was leaving his wife and kids and taking off. But by the time we we went home together, uh, he had canceled that flight. Alice was married to Ray Brock for a relatively short period of time between 1962 and 1968, but it was during those years that the famous Alice's Restaurant incident occurred in Stockbridge. She says that both Ray and her mother didn't like her being so wrapped up in left-wing politics in New York, and she says that her mother offered them the opportunity to come to the Berkshires in western Massachusetts for a few months. The mother was going to Europe and They could stay at her place and use her car while she was gone. Plus, she got them employment at the same place where she was working, the Stockbridge School. 
Alice says it was an unaccredited school in those days, at least until her mom forced the issue and got the school its legitimate educational status. Ray, who was an architect and builder by trade, taught something called manly arts, while Alice was assigned to the school library. The library was the place that you sent kids who wouldn't behave in their class. <laughs> so a lot of being a librarian was like, shush, shush, don't talk, no talking. That was a far cry from today's professional librarians with degrees and certifications. However, Alice was very happy because it brought her close to her third true love, books. In fact, it gave her the opening for her first true commercial undertaking, a small bookstore in the basement of her house. Paperbacks had just come out. So after we left Stockbridge School, I opened a little bookstore. But it was all paperbacks. You know, they were cheap. And there was all kinds of stuff that wasn't textbooks. In fact, it was so successful that a friend of Alice's took it over when she moved on. And eventually he moved the operation to Lenox, Massachusetts. Today, you can visit the bookstore in Lenox. It's still in business. At this point, Alice is still only 19 years old, her husband Ray 12 years older than she was. What would come next is the venerable former church in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Alice's mom bought them that church, which had been formally deconsecrated as a religious institution. She got them the church as a wedding present. Since Ray was the architect and builder, he set out to fix up the place and turn it into a home. While the renovation was underway, they were still working at the Stockbridge School. They got to know a lot of the students, and the students identified with them in their counterculture ways. Alice says that many of the students who came to hang out in their converted church did so because it was simply a sign of the times. It was the 60s. So all those kids, they went to college for one year or less. And then they came and they lived with us because we had all this space. And it was okay with their parents because we had been teachers. She said some parents gave her $10 a week for food, which didn't really even begin to cover the sheer volume of spaghetti that the mostly male guests consumed. Alice says her mother took notice of the situation and wanted to get Alice out of the predicament of constantly cooking for so many people. My mother didn't like the idea of me sitting home in the church with all these kids around making spaghetti every night. So she said, oh, there's this little restaurant, this little diner for sale in Stockbridge. She said, I could get it for you. And so her mom rented the back room. That was the name of the restaurant that would eventually become the basis for the Arlo Guthrie song, Alice's Restaurant. Alice says she didn't have a clue about running a restaurant at the time. I had been a waitress. But that was it. I loved to cook, but I had no business uh, experience or, I don't know, it was just one of those things that I fell into. Growing up, she says she had a Fanny Farmer cookbook, and she used to make dishes from that. At the back room, she says she made every meal individually with no big vats of pre-prepared food. There were no microwaves, and she baked fresh bread in gas-fired ovens. Well, eventually she grew the business into a successful venture, but it took its own toll. Instead of feeding kids round the clock at her church, she was at the restaurant from 5 a.m. to midnight every day. And that started to put considerable strain on her marriage, as was her suspicions of her husband's extracurricular activities while she was away. One of the students who hung out at the church in those days was Woody Guthrie's son, Arlo. 
Woody Guthrie, for those of you who aren't aware, was an iconic folk singer in the 1940s and 50s. He wrote the anthem, This Land is Your Land, among dozens more. Alice says that Arlo graduated from Stockbridge School and then went out to Montana. Arlo went to college. He was maybe there a month. But, you know, he, he claimed he wanted to study forestry just so he could go in the woods, I guess. <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, he never intended to be like a park ranger or anything. He was always just a singer. So now it was Thanksgiving Day 1965 when Alice was cooking a Thanksgiving feast for all of the former guests at her church when Arlo returned with a friend, Richard Robbins. With all the renovation work being done at the church and all the space that was there, there had been no rush to remove the debris. There was a lot of uh, building debris. That's what it was, really, was building debris. It wasn't food garbage or stinky garbage. It was trash. You know, torn up rugs and and odds and ends of wood and stuff like that. Technically, it's called construction and demolition debris. Still, Alice says this is one point that she goes to great lengths to ensure that the official record is clear as a bell when people hear the story. It wasn't like I threw all the food out in the main part of the church and just let it rot there. No, we didn't. And this is where things got interesting. Arlo and Richard volunteered to help out. So when they took out the trash, the dump was closed. But Arlo, who had gone to school up there, knew of a place... It was like a private dump. And so the saga continued. He said, well, I know where we can dump it. And so they dumped all this stuff down a, like a ravine where there was other garbage. But somebody saw them. Well, that person called the police. For anyone who's familiar with the song, the police chief of Stockbridge, Massachusetts was, as Arlo nicknamed him, Officer Obi. And Officer Obi called Alice. I get this phone call. And it's Officer Obenheim. And he says, we want you to come down to the police station because we found your name under this pile of garbage. There was a letter, I guess, with our name and address on it. And so it was time to visit the police officer station, as Arlo called it. I sent Arlo and Rick Robbins, it was. And they went to the police station. And next thing they knew... They were in handcuffs. Alice says it was pretty clear in her mind why there was such a heavy hand being administered for this incident. It was some kind of a big crime. I think because they were they were hippies and, uh, you know, Stockbridge was a very, very conservative, rich people's home. So we certainly didn't sit in. We had long hair and all that stuff. Lived in a church that made us freaks. Of course, when you're in jail, you get one phone call. Well, Arlo used it to call Alice and tell her what had happened and also say they'd like to be bailed out. The bail was like $50. Well, who had $50 in those days? But I took a collection among all the people and we scraped up $50 and I went and bailed them out. Now, in the song, Arlo says that Alice had a few nasty words to Obi on the side. Well, Alice says that was only the half of it. Well, I went in there screaming at the chief of police and... No, he said, I can put you in a cell, too. What about that judge with the seeing eye dog? The one who wasn't going to be able to look at the 27 8 by 10 colored glossy pictures with circles and arrows and a paragraph on the back of each one explaining what each one was to be used as evidence against them? Judge Hannon. He was a blind judge, and he 
was in the courtroom with his seeing eye dog. Which led to one of the more memorable lines in a song filled with memorable lines, the one about this being another case of typical American blind injustice. After the popularity of the song became clear, United Artists decided to make a movie by the same name. Alice says that all the original players were called back and brought together for the making of the film, but in several cases, actors played the original persons. For example, Pat Quinn played Alice Brock, and if Pat Quinn sounds familiar, she was also one of Marlon Brando's lovers later in life. Alice says that she, Arlo, and Officer O.B. got to spend time together on the set, waiting for their turns to do some filming. And she says during that time, they actually grew to get to know one another, and they became good friends. That friendship remained until Police Chief William Oberheim's death in 1994. Well, becoming friends was the positive part of the movie. On the negative side, Alice says it took a lot of liberty with the truth. There were a lot of things that appeared the same, but they weren't the same. You know, they put a lot of drugs and, and uh, violence in the movie, which there wasn't any. There were also insinuations of extramarital affairs by Alice, which were also not true. Ironically, she says that one of the true scenes was the reenactment of her wedding to Ray Brock, but even that had its shortcomings. <laughs> it was very funny because, you know, there's a wedding scene in the movie. At the same time as the wedding scene was going on while they were shooting the wedding scene, I was getting a divorce. In all, Alice ran three different restaurants in Stockbridge. The back room was the one that everyone refers to as Alice's Restaurant. It's on Route 7 in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And if you look on Google Maps you'll find a historical marker denoting where the restaurant is located. It's currently called Teresa's Stockbridge Cafe. After her restaurant adventure, she continued her dream, a dream that was half a century old. It was a dream she used to have as a child when her parents took her to Provincetown on Cape Cod for summer vacation. I loved it. I just loved it. And I always said, well, someday I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to live in Provincetown. And it took me about 50 years to make that come true, but it did come true. Alice has been living in Provincetown for 40 years, although she no longer has her art studio. She suffers from a medical condition that makes it difficult to use her hands for painting and drawing. When she was active, she focused on people and animals. And those beach stones, they were an idea that originally occurred on a summer trip to Martha's Vineyard with Ray Brock while they were still a couple. She wanted to bring some rocks that she had picked up off the beach at Martha's Vineyard back to the Berkshires with her. And, of course, Ray said, forget it. We're not taking that back. You know, it's just rocks. I said, oh, but I'm going to do something with them. So then I started drawing on them with India ink, and I waterproofed them with nail polish, clear nail polish, because... After I drew on them, I would put them back on the beach. But with her new life in Provincetown, without Ray, and with her art studio, she was free to pursue those beach stones and all of her other artistry pursuits. Well, Alice says that this chapter in her life changed her from what she had once been. I hated being Alice of Alice's Restaurant because it, it kind of locked me into a, a role that, first of all, I didn't really write. It wasn't really tr all that true. And I had done so many other things since then, but everybody thought of me as that Alice of Alice's restaurant, not as a as a human being who 
had many interests and had done many things. But then with the openness of her art studio and the ability for people to walk in and visit, she saw the impact that her role had had as people just walked in and told her their stories about their recollections of her. It started out, oh, my mother knows who you are. Now it's my grandmother knows who you are. In time, she says, her resentment completely turned around to a mood of happiness. People would come in and they would just, they didn't know I was Alice of Alice's restaurant, but they would come in and after a while it kind of dawned on them. And they would just, ah, oh, you made my day. I had one woman, she burst into tears. She just, everybody would tell me about their experiences in the 60s. It was just wonderful. And I said, how the hell can I resent this when all I have to do is say my name and people smile? And yes, I was one of those people. The day in 2014 when my wife and I strolled into Alice's art studio in Provincetown while it was still around. I shared with her my love of the song and the importance it held for me and my family. And this brings me to the little surprise I had promised up front, the way that this truly Massachusetts story comes back to Connecticut in one small way. As I told Alice that day, for 10 years in the 1970s and 80s, I was the news director of radio station WRKI-FM, better known as I-95-FM. We're now in retirement, and after stints in government and corporate, I'm back on air at I-95 doing a show called The Place You Live every Tuesday morning at 8.20 and 8.50, featuring stories about local history. But back then, in the year 1980, I was on duty with the disc jockey Buzz Knight on Thanksgiving Day. We were the only two in the studio. I suggested to him that we start a new Thanksgiving tradition by playing Alice's Restaurant at high noon. Well, he did it, even though it broke all the station's rules at the time about formats. And, well, it caught on. Other stations heard it, and they started copying the tradition. Well, today, it almost doesn't matter where you are in New England. If you turn on your radio at 12 noon on Thanksgiving Day, you're bound to hear Alice's Restaurant playing. And so, this Connecticut radio station played its role in keeping the wonderful saga of Alice's Restaurant alive for the ages. After I told Alice about I-95's contribution to starting this Thanksgiving tradition, she was gracious enough to record this promotional intro, which the station can now play every Thanksgiving. Hello, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving. This is Alice of Alice's Restaurant, and I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving. I'm here at I-95. I hope your turkey is delicious and your gravy doesn't have any lumps. And for the record, Alice still hosts a Thanksgiving feast, now in Provincetown due to her inability to travel easily, for the original crew of eight or nine individuals who are still alive and who were at the church in Great Barrington for that Thanksgiving Day feast in 1965. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I want to thank my special guest for this episode, Alice Brock, the Alice in Alice's Restaurants. Please follow me on my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. 
That's where I place photos supplementing these podcasts. Plus, I'd love to hear from you, and you could always send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you like what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. (laughs) 